All right. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. It has been a moment since I have uh, actually had one of these shows. I had gone on vacation to Hawaii, a much-needed trip, but I'm back. Uh, I'm so happy to have my guest today, Nicole, uh, Nikki, on on Peggy's Recovery Corner. Um, Welcome to the corner. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I've been wanting to come on. Yeah, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time. So th- this is a recovery podcast, and we talk about all things recovery. Um, you know, anything that's related to mental health, addiction, alcoholism. Often I say in the beginning of my podcast, we talk about all things recovery or lack thereof, depending on how you roll. Now, a lot of people, uh, you know, some people have questioned, like, why do you say that part or lack thereof? And often, like, there's a lot of people that are out there that call themselves hope dealers or, um, you know, uh, it, it's sort of like there's I've had people on that. Um, and, I you know, I want to have people on that are former body brokers or that have been caught up in the treatment game, you know, the scamming game. Um, they, they think that they're helping people and they're the way that they view recovery is is a, a lot different than how I live recovery. And so that's why I say the lack thereof. Now, so, you know, we will get into uh, first. I want to hear about your background, your upbringing, and all that, um, and then what it got into, and then we get into the recovery aspect. And I want I want you to know something. Like I've been watching you. You've been watching me from a distance. I I, I know what you do. I know who you are to a certain extent. That's why I want to get to know you better today. Um, but. Uh, when it comes to subs, I know that you know my stance on Suboxone, and I know and I respect your stance on Suboxone too. I respect anybody's stance on Suboxone. So, uh, but we'll we'll talk about that more later on to to see like what what it really uh, what what everybody's different interpretation of their recovery is. Over you know during the pandemic, I did take I was taking some courses to do some. Um, uh, it was to become a certified uh, sober coach, right? And we ta- we were taught in 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 those classes that when you are coaching somebody, like a recovery coach or your uh, sober coach for somebody, your client is allowed to feel how they feel about their recovery as being the recovery. So if they say that they're sober, even though they still smoke weed, that's them. Like they can. Right. They- that, that's their recovery. Like you, you don't have the, you don't need to be telling them like what it means to, for, to, for them to be in real recovery. Right. Like, and, and I have myself like, well, we'll talk about it too. Like about my TikTok page, I'd gone on there for a little while and talked about some things. And then I got called out by some people from the harm reduction crew. And you and I had our own side conversations and, and we know about that too. But, um, I I've been sober almost 15 years. I'm completely abstinent. I don't, I don't feel that I need to depend on anything to keep me sober, but to each their own. If there's other people that are out there that are on certain things or that are still smoking weed or doing California friendly and things like that to each their own, that's their life. I don't uh, mingle in, in, in what they could interpret as recovery. So we'll talk about that. Now, okay. this is what I want to know about Nikki, about Nicole. Like, who are you? Okay, where were you born? Where were you raised? And where did you ended up end up moving to and become the person that you are? And then we'll get into the addiction aspect too. 
<clears throat> okay, so um, I was born in New York. My mom is Mexican and my dad is Italian. Mm -hmm. My mom had to learn how to speak English. Spanish was her first language. Mm -hmm. And when her and my dad met, they met in the Air Force in Jacksonville, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. When they met, they fell in love and they moved to New York to live in my grandmother's basement because they were, you know, just getting started just getting married and all that. And that's when they had me. We stayed there for a couple of years. And then my dad brought us here to Arkansas because they had been stationed in Arkansas when they were in the Air Force. And they knew that it was a safe place. They could raise a family. And so my mom had two other daughters. So I'm the oldest of three girls. I have two little sisters, Michelle and Christine. And um, my childhood was the was the mom. It was amazing. My parents are the most amazing parents in the whole wide world. My parents are straight laced. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't do any kind of drugs. Um, my mom raised me up in a really strict Pentecostal church mm -hmm. to where like we couldn't cut our hair. We couldn't wear makeup. We couldn't wear earrings. We couldn't wear pants. We had to wear dresses. And, um, so this kind of started my life out like in uh, school, like on a rocky road, because all the other girls were, you know, first of all, all the other girls were white girls with blonde hair and blue eyes. Mm -hmm. They all got to wear pants and shorts. And I automatically felt like I didn't fit in, like from the moment I started, you know, kindergarten, basically. Mm -hmm. um, I can remember being like in fourth or fifth grade and like all of my friends were buying like Jabot jeans and I was so left out because I couldn't wear jeans like everybody else was. I felt so alienated already. Um, and so not only did I feel alienated because I was different and I couldn't dress like everybody else, I also started struggling like with my weight at a really young age. Like I've always like fluctuated up and down, up and down with my weight. Mm -hmm. And um, weight was like a big focus in my family because my dad is like a, he was a bodybuilder. When we were younger, my dad would compete in these like competitions. He would go do like um, this thing called the Malvern Brick Fest in Arkansas where they like, uh, I don't know what it's called, bench press. And they, who can bench press the most, who can squat the most, all that kind of stuff. And so my dad was always like super duper in shape. The reason why he was super the reason why he was super duper in shape was because he was, he also struggled with his weight. And mm -hmm. so that was his way of combating that. And so growing up in a household where like physical appearance was really important, I already was starting to notice like, Hey, I'm not skinny. I don't, you know, I'm not looking like I'm supposed to look. And it was something I'm really hyper-focused on. Mm -hmm. So probably like in fifth or sixth grade my mom moved us out of that church that we were in where we um could only wear dresses and we went into like a more secular church where we could wear pants and makeup and all that kind of stuff right. and um then i started to feel like i fit in a lot better that cat freaked me out <laughs> <laughs> he just loves to be around me i saw his little body walk and i thought it was behind me <laughs> anyway um they, they made it to where like we could wear uh, pants and all that kind of stuff. So then I started to fit in more, but I was still really struggling with my weight. Um, and so I remember probably around like 16, 
15 or 16, I went to the do- our family doctor mm-hmm. and he prescribed me Adipex, which is a, a meth. It's like an amphetamine. It is. It's, it was called fentermine back then. Mm-hmm. And so he prescribed me that and I lost a bunch of weight and I kind of came into my own. How old were you? Off. How old were you when that happened? About 16. 16. Okay. So I'm on a freaking amphetamine at 16 years old. And let me just tell wait, you. Wait, was that prescribed to you solely for weight loss? It wasn't. Solely pres- for weight loss. Okay. It wasn't to try to, you know, make you focused. It wasn't like Adderall. Nothing like that. No, this was solely for weight loss. Like diet pills, basically. Right. right. Yes. So, and I was so self-conscious, like I cried to my mom to take me to the doctor so I could get help. I am going to go crazy because this phone is going to ring and ring and ring it. But if I do put it on do not disturb, then I won't be able to hear you. Okay, so okay. just bear with me. Okay. So um, I got on the Adipex and it started making me like I lost a bunch of weight. I felt great on Adipex though. Like I, I felt great. I was better at everything I did. I felt like I could do my class better. I felt like I could do sports better, everything. So already like, at 16 years old, I'm like, stimulants are amazing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I got my first boyfriend. I started dating. I lost a bunch of weight. And then my boyfriend was smoking and drinking. And that's how I kind of got introduced to using drugs was with him. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just like marijuana and alcohol, which at that time, I didn't think was that big of a deal. But I was like drinking alcoholically. Like I was not just drinking to like have a couple of beers at a party. Like I was that girl that was on top of the bar, like slinging my shirt around my head, freaking out of it wild. You know, I was drunk as a skunk. And so, um, I, it's like everything I had to do to the next extreme. If it was alcohol, I was drinking like a whole bottle of freaking ENJ BSOP brandy. If it was, you know, the Adipex, I was taking two at a time instead of one of the t- one at a time. Then at that time, you could still get ephedrine pills across the counter. This is before yep. they, they outlawed that. Yep. And so once my doctor wouldn't give me the Adipex anymore, I just went to Walmart and got me the pills that I could take to help me stay skinny, you know? And I just continued taking those all throughout high school um, until I got introduced to methamphetamine, which down here in the South, I hate to say this, but it was like some of my friend's parents were manufacturing meth in their trailers, you know, like it, it wasn't like I had to go far away to find it. It was like right in the backyard. Okay. And so I started using methamphetamine at 17. That's like a junior in high school. And I remember from like ninth to 11th grade, I had such good grades. And then from 11th to 12th, I almost failed out of school. Like the coat, my coach had to pass me because he was like, I don't want to hold you back. You've done so good all these years. And now I don't want you to fail your senior year. You know, mm-hmm. I was in all kinds of extracurricular activities. I was playing basketball. I was a cheerleader. I was playing fast pitch softball. And I did all those things up until my senior year when I got benched on everything because mm-hmm. I was getting so fucked up and everybody knew it. Right. You know, um, my family my family was amazing though. My mom and dad, they tried to help me. They tried to, you know, um, get, they tried to, to get me help. But what had happened was 
my sister, my younger sister is bipolar and my, my family didn't know that was what was wrong because, um, when I was in high school, my sister was right below me. My sister started to like run away and get really promiscuous. And um, she stopped going to school. And, and the basically the police came to my parents and they were like, if your daughter doesn't go to school, we're going to have to press charges on you for neglect, mm-hmm. you know? And so my parents were like, what? Because my parents were like straight laced. They, they take good care of us. There's no reason why that should be happening. My mom and dad could not control my sister. Right. And so my parents had to have this thing called a FINS petition mm-hmm. placed on my sister to where they relinquished their responsibility on my sister to the state of Arkansas. Right. So the state of Arkansas took my sister and put my sister in juvie, juvenile jail. And while all this was going on, I'm like running away, getting high and, you know, doing stuff. And my parents are preoccupied with my sister who is like struggling with a debilitating mental illness that was undiagnosed. Right. And so um, they finally got my sister diagnosed with bipolar disorder and got her put on the right medications. Mm -hmm. And um, then she got pregnant at 16, 17 years old. And so then they were even more, you know, um, consumed with what was going on with her. So I was kind of like slipping through the cracks and doing my own thing. And I think that's how I kind of like got away with a lot of stuff because my parents were so consumed with making sure my sister was okay. Um, that they kind of lost sight of what I was doing, gotcha. but I've always been like a super, you know, like very caring person. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm very emotional. Um, I have no, like, and I know this about myself. Like I have no balance when it comes to my emotions. Like I'm either like really, really um, happy or really, really low. Mm-hmm. I can go from like laughing in one sentence to like psychopath. In the next. <laughs> but mm-hmm. that's sometimes a good thing. <laughs> but, um, uh, and I'm, and I'm, the longer I stay sober, I'm trying to get better about that. But I ended up, um, you know, getting really bad off on methamphetamine and then oxys. And I started shooting up. Long story short, I hold, went hold on, slow down for a second. Let me let me ask this question. Yeah, yeah. It went from methamphetamine. When you say shooting up, were you shooting meth or just shooting other stuff? So, I started out just smoking methamphetamine, and I was how old seventeen were you? years old. Seventeen, okay. 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 From seventeen till about twenty-four, I just smoked and smoked it, snorted it. Um, ate Xanax bars and did opiate pills, just took them pills mm-hmm. around 23, 24 years old. I started injecting methamphetamine okay. and it was just like a curiosity killed the cat kind of thing. I was hanging out with people who were making it at their house mm-hmm. and everyone was coming out of the back bedroom. They would leave me and I would be in the, in the living room and okay. I would be doing it my way. And then they would all come out from that back bedroom and you could, I just could see that they were like a lot higher than I was. And so one day I just walked back there and I was like, what are y'all doing? And that's, I had never seen this before. I had never seen anybody sh- use a needle or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were doing it. And I asked them, I said, will you, will you do that for me? And they were like, no, no, Nicole, we're not going to do that. You know, we don't want you to do this. It's not good for you. And I was like, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it myself. So I need you to help me so I don't hurt myself. And then they did. And that's how it all began. And that right there was like the shifting point in my life. Because after that, 
six months later, I got busted for possession of a controlled substance, methamphetamine, and I um, was put on what, probation. What, what state was that in? Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And it was always around already. I mean, there was a ton of meth. Oh, everywhere. Always, always. And, you know, a lot of it was, you guys, because I hung out, like once I started to realize that I liked to use stimulants, I changed all my friends. I went from hanging out with my cheerleader girlfriends and my friends from my church to my friends that were getting high, you know, Um, but I was young when I started doing drugs. And so I got addicted like really quickly. Um, and after I started shooting up, it was like literally six months to the day after I started shooting up that I was, you know, in my car, I had a guy drive in my car and we had just gotten done delivering meth to some of our friends because we were idiots like that. And they set us up, they, they snitched us out and we were surrounded by cop cars and SUVs. Like you would have thought that we were like. Paulo Escobar or some shit, how yeah. they had us surrounded with all these fucking cop cars and SUVs. Straight um, task force. All for petty possession, dude. Petty possession. Um, he had like, well, he had like six grams in his sock, but I literally had, this is it, in my purse, a syringe with residue of methamphetamine. Hmm. And I got charged with possession of meth. Was uh is was Arkansas a no tolerance state at the time? Uh, I, that was a class C, that was a felony for me, and they gave me three years probation because I'd never been in trouble before. Mm-hmm. Um, but what had happened was, how can you give somebody three years probation that don't know how to stay sober? Like, what am I going to do? Just magically stop using drugs? You know, I didn't know what to do, and so what did I do? I tried every single thing in my power to stay getting high. And, and make make it through my probation. I tried everything. Wait, what are you I on? I tried to. You on formal, only, formal probation? Formal probation. I was on probation for three years with the state. So you were getting high while on probation? Were they not testing you? Of course they were. That's what I'm getting to. Listen to this. Okay. So they were testing me. And um, <clears throat> I tried. This is what I did first. You know how they say in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? They talk about how you'll try to drink just whiskey or you'll try to drink, you know, beer or you'll try to just do this. So the first couple of um, drug tests, I was trying to figure out, can I just do Xanaxes and then stop three days before and pass the drug test? Can I just do a line of meth on this day and then do it this? You know what I'm saying? I was trying all these different combinations. Mm -hmm. I kept on failing my drug test. So the last trick I had up my sleeve was. I'm going to go to the script doctor and I'm going to get me a prescription for benzos. And then my freaking probation officer can't do. So I went down to the local script doctor, gave him 200 bucks cash and got me a prescription for benzos, opiates and some somas. And I said, ha ha, I have a prescription now to my probation officer. And that's when she called my bluff and said, bring your prescriptions in. I want to count your pills. Mm. I had already taken all the pills. They were gone. Mm. <laughs> she was on to you. So I came in with these bottles of pills with mm. all these fake pills. inside. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. And she was like, I'm done with you, Nicole. I'm done. I'm giving you one chance. And she sent me to treatment. Wow. 
in El Dorado, Arkansas. And I went to treatment in El Dorado and they were so great. I did really well. And that's one thing about me is like, you can put me in treatment, you can put me in prison and I will do well. I will comply. I mold to the situation. I'm a chameleon. Everything's good. I do what I'm supposed to do and I get out of there. Mm-hmm. And they wanted me to stay at that treatment center and like actually do the um, stay in sober living and all that. And I was like, no, I need to go back to hot springs. My probation officer had even approved for me to stay down there, but I refused to. And I came back and I relapsed. And um, when she found out that I relapsed, she said, you're going to prison. And that's when she revoked my probation and sent me to prison. And I went to a boot camp style prison in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So how long were you there for? One year. One year. One whole year. Yep. And did you stay sober when you got out of there? I Okay, so I went down for a year. I stayed sober the whole time I was in prison until the last two months I was there. I met a girl in the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. See, I worked in laundry and she worked in the cafeteria. So we were like buddies. She would get me food. I would press her clothes, that kind of thing. One day I walked into the bathroom and I caught her pulling something out of her and it was a bag of hydrocodone pills. Mm -hmm. And so since I had caught her, she was like, listen, my mom and my grandma sneak these pills into me every visitation. And I was like, shucky ducky, Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to give me some of those every visitation. And so for the, for the next two months, I stayed high (laughs) on hydros every weekend but I knew that I didn't want to do that when I got out and I really didn't want to do that when I got out I I was like I got to do something different so my probation officer I called her and I said can I come back to hot springs and she was like no you're banned from this county and I was like banned from the county that's where my whole family lives and so (laughs) I said that's fine and I paroled out to a sober living house here in Little Rock where I live now and I did great. I stayed sober for nine months. Um, I had a sponsor. I went into AA. I started working the 12 steps. I started chairing meetings. I now, were you, really were you absent during that time? Like completely? Nope. Were you on anything? Nothing so? at all. Zero. Okay. And how long did that last for? Nine months. Nine months. Okay. Nine okay. months. I stayed sober for nine months at the abstinence way. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that's the longest I've ever been able to obtain, like staying sober through abstinence. Mm-hmm. And at that time, like my life was so structured. And I was, like I said, I was not living on my own. I was in sober living. I had gotten a job and I got promoted to like an assistant manager at the Kroger Deli. I was doing really good. I was making good money. And where I went wrong, and I can see this now when I reflect back on all this, is I I was doing so well, but I got really, really consumed with my job and like making money. And that always happens to me. Like I get really, I throw myself into my job because I want to be successful. And so I started putting so much focus on my job and I started letting up on my meetings. I stopped calling my sponsor and I stopped being accountable to the people that were helping me stay sober. And all it took was just one time somebody having some drugs, you know, and I, that's all it took. One of my girlfriends called me. She said, I got some Roxy's. Uh, I need help shooting it up. Will you help me? I went over there and that's the first time I shot up opiates was with her at, when I relapsed in Little Rock. Okay, so then then what? Okay, 
so after that, um, I stayed, I stayed out. That was in 2010. So I stayed out until, um, 2015. I didn't get sober until 2015. Um, in 2012, I met my husband and me and my husband, uh, I was staying on my friend's couch because I never had a place to live of my own. Mm -hmm. I had my car, thank God. And I would use my car and my job to get me places to stay. Like I can take you to your job. I can pay half the rent. And so I always would, would hustle my way into stands on, on somebody's couch. Well, I had hustled my way into staying on my friend Kaylee's couch with her and her boyfriend Hunter. And we decided, decided to have a little party one night. And I called my friend Casey and I was like, Hey man, bring some cute boys over. We're having a party. And so he did. And he brought my husband with him. And, um, my husband is a ginger. I'm talking white as the pale driven snow, red, red hair. Okay. And I'm sitting there and we're, we're all high. And here's this little ginger snap sitting on the couch, which is my bed basically. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, Hey man, what's up? You know, we started talking and he was like, you know, we were feeling each other. We stayed up talking all night long, just talking about all the things that we wanted to do in life. Now you got to also remember we were high on meth. So that's probably why we were talking so much. Yep. But we, even though me and my husband were so high, we were both equally yoked. And what I mean by that is we both came from good families. We were both raised up right from wrong. You know, usually the guys that I would get into relationships with would be just the scum of the earth. You know, I was in a relationship with one guy for six years who beat me every single day, mm-hmm. you know, and he was just a whor- just a bad person. But Neil and I were like two people who we had just gotten into the wrong crowd and we were getting fucked up and we needed to change our lives. And we mm-hmm. both wanted to be different. We just didn't know how to do it. Right. And so when we got together, um, we would talk about wanting to get sober all the time about wanting to change our lives. And we would try, we would get, we got a place together. We would sober up for a couple of weeks and then relapse. And it was the, it was the, um, you know, when you have a significant other, you will do a couple, y'all will both do good for a couple of weeks. And then y'all both look at each other. And then one will say, we deserve this. We deserve to celebrate our sobriety with a couple of Xanax bars. And that was our pattern all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, until in 2013, I found out I was pregnant. I found out I was pregnant because I had moved in to this house right here with my, with Neil and his parents, um, that we were trying to get sober and they were like, if you guys change your life, you know, we're buying a new home. You guys could move in here. You could have this house. We're buying a new house. And this is all contingent on y'all getting sober, you know? And so we were really trying hard to Mm. get our lives together. And one day I was downstairs and Neil's dad walked up to me and he said, are you pregnant? And I was like, I was skinny as a beanpole. I was, you know, doing meth and all this. I was like, no. And he's like, you're pregnant. You're pregnant. (laughs) And I was like, no, I'm not. A week later, I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. And I just knew, I just knew, I didn't know. I said, what am I going to do? I don't know how to stay sober. I always fuck shit up. You know, like I, I didn't want to have, I didn't want to be pregnant and hurt my baby. 
And so I, we sat down with Neil's parents and they were like, we'll help you guys. You know, we'll help you. you. We want you to have this baby. Y'all love each other. We will support you. And so we decided, cause I was going to have an abortion. You know, I was like, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm going to do. And they were like, we will support you the whole step of the way. And then we found out we were having a little boy. And, um, Neil's dad passed away about two years after my son was born. And so it was a really big deal that we had a little boy to carry on their family name and all that. And so throughout my whole pregnancy, it was like this pattern of me getting sober for a couple weeks and then relapsing. I was able to stop using opiates and benzos, but for some reason I really struggled to stop using methamphetamine. And so Throughout my whole pregnancy, I was back and forth, back and forth shooting meth. And I didn't start showing until I was is, is like. That, is that why you're getting really emotional is because of those times and like knowing that because you were pregnant and you were still actively using like that fucks with you, huh? Oh, absolutely. It still fucks with me a lot. And I don't mean to get so emotional, but. I, I don't mind you getting emotional. I, I tried so hard to stop and I know how wrong it was. And I felt it every time I used, I felt horrible. Like I wanted to just die. But then when I would stop using, I would feel even more horrible, you know? And so I didn't start showing in my pregnancy until I was like seven months pregnant. And it was because I was so thin and I was on stimulants and I was just like, it was horrible. I went to every one of my um, pregnancy appointments. And for some reason, I don't know what was going on, Pej. But back then in like 2013, 2014, nobody tested me. Nobody looked at me. Nobody looked at my arms. Like I was shooting drugs. Like you could clearly see that I was malnourished and I was not healthy. But for some reason, I slipped through the cracks here in Arkansas. And um, July 4th, of 2014 I went into labor or July 3rd of 2014 I went into labor and I had my son at one o'clock in the morning on July 4th and um on July 6th I left the hospital and took my son home and that was it like nobody said anything nobody took my kid away CPS didn't come like I thought all these things were going to happen right mm -hmm. and um but after I got away out of that hospital without having my son taken away. Cause I mean, I was praying, I was praying. I was like, I am getting sober. There's no way I'm going to go back to drugs. Like this is it. I'm stopping. Like I just got away. I just got out of there, you know, without them taking my kid. Mm -hmm. And um, so for the next 90 days, man, I white knuckled it. I white knuckled it. I didn't use any drugs. I breastfed my son. My mom came down from New York and helped me. Um, like learn all the things you're supposed to learn to take care of a baby. And then around the 98 day mark, I took Xanax and relapsed and I was right back to the methamphetamine, right back to the oxys. Only now I have this newborn baby, you know? And so I was really fortunate that my mother and father-in-law lived with us. We all lived together. So I could leave, I was leaving my son with my mother and father-in-law. I was taken off for like two or three days at a time, leaving my husband, um, leaving them, you know, to fend for themselves and take care of my kid. Well, it was probably like a year to the day after my son was born that my best friend called CPS on me. And this was somebody that, 
me and her got high together. We shot drugs together and um, she called CPS on me because she was mad at me and they came was, was and they sober? And, was she sober. No, no. She was smoking crack with me, honey. Mm-hmm. No, she called CPS on me out of spite. She was mad at me because she owed me $30 and she owed me $30. So I went and got it from her boyfriend and she got mad at me. And so she called CPS on me and they came to my house and they drug tested me. They drug tested my husband and we both failed for opiates and benzos. And that's when my son got taken away from me. And that is when I got sober. Finally, they took Nathaniel away and I was like, dude, man, fuck this. And I went straight into treatment. Like I did not even pass go. I did not skip. I said, it's okay. I'm going to detox. And I went straight into detox and then I went straight into rehab. Now, while I was in rehab, I, um, my husband was like picking me up all the time because we had court dates and stuff for CPS. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up relapsing the first two weeks I was in, uh, inside treatment. So, So your husband was picking you up he was out. He didn't go to rehab. He didn't sober up or what? My husband was in outpatient treatment and I was in inpatient treatment, but he was still taking Xanax and sneaking them to me in the treatment center. This was going on the first two weeks I was in treatment. So they catch me at the treatment center, taking the Xanax because they're giving me drug tests. And for some reason, these benzos aren't leaving my system. You know, and so they caught me and they were like, listen, we could kick you out right now, man, but we don't want you to lose your your kid. We see how much you we know we love we know you love your son. And these were people that knew me from the treatment industry here in Arkansas. Like they knew me from the past when I went to rehab before they knew me from living in sober living. And so they were like, they didn't want to kick me out. They wanted to give me a chance. So they gave me a chance. And I did for the next two weeks. I freaking, you know. I minded my P's and my Q's and I got out of treatment. I started fighting for my son. Now this is where the Suboxone comes in. So I had gotten out of treatment in the last two weeks that I was in, they like stopped communication for me and my husband. We weren't allowed to talk to each other. So while I was in treatment, my husband had gotten put on Suboxone. Now my husband has always been on some form of medication assisted treatment for the last 25 years. He was one of the first people like here in Arkansas to start doing the studies when they brought buprenorphine out, like way back in the early 2000s. And so he had went and got put on Suboxone and I had no idea. So when I came out of treatment, he said, I'm on subs. And I was pissed. I was like, why are you on Suboxone? Like that's that's not sober. That's just trying to get away with being high still. You know what I mean? I was like, you're going to get it to where we can't get our kid back. And um, that's what I truly believed. And for the next three or four days, you know, I went to meetings. I got a sponsor. But I watched him, like, have such an easier time at early sobriety than I was having. You know, like, he wasn't fighting cravings to want to go and use. And I was like, I mean, I was like, fuck that. I need to get on Suboxone, you know, like maybe this can help me. And so he took me to see the psychiatrist that was the same psychiatrist that I had in the treatment center. And he was like, yeah, Nicole, this medication is made for people like you. This is exactly what he said to me. He said, this medication is designed for people just like you, people who chronically relapse, people who can't obtain sobriety time. And he looked at me, he said, what have you always done? I said, well, going in and out and relapse. And he goes, 
well, why don't you do something different this time? And that's all he, he sold me on it. I was like, okay. And so I started Suboxone with 30 days sober off opiates. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the first day I take subs after being sober for 30 days, I was like, first day and knock me the uh, knock me out you know what I mean and I had never take really taken subs like that before so I was like holy shit and so I went in to see the doctor after being on him for like three days and I was like I'm so tired like I don't feel like myself and then they, they were like well you need to be on this milligram and so they put me on like the eight milligram dose which was like a guest regular dose for everybody Mm -hmm. And I would probably say after about seven days, I felt normal after that. But it took about seven days for me to feel normal because I had nothing in my system when I started out on the Suboxone. And um, now that I look back on it, now that I've been sober, you know, I'm still on subs. I have I'm on a very, very, very low amount of Suboxone. I'm on a quarter of one milligram. Like, So you, you mentioned before we even started the, the podcast today you said you've been misinformed right misinformed by who doctor so i feel like the doctors didn't tell me everything about subs like they told me how it was going to help me to stay sober and how it was going to help me to change my life but they didn't tell me that when i wanted to get off of it that it was going to be fucking hell to pay they didn't tell me that um even trying to come off of 0.25 of a milligram, I'm going to be deathly ill for like freaking a month. You know what I mean? Like then nobody told me these things. And it was, it's, it pisses me off now. It pisses Wait, me off now. So are, is this something that you know as a fact that if you come off of those, that sh small amount of milligrams of Suboxone that you can for a month, I tried to come off subs January 10th of 2022 and I was on 0.25 of a milligram. Mm -hmm. And when I jumped off, I was sick up until 12 days and I could not take it anymore. And mm -hmm. I reinduced, reinducted back onto the 0.25 of mm -hmm. a milligram. Okay. Oh, so you went back on? Yes. All right. Question for you. Now, this is where, where it kind of gets interesting. I want to get into some stuff because... It's such a hot topic. You know, obviously, like over the years, I would see a lot of memes that say Suboxone ain't sober and a lot of people that speak very uh, strongly about it. I, I see your TikTok. I see people come and challenge you. I see people tell you that uh, you're not really sober. I see people tell you that um, that you, you know, no pain, no gain, like you need to get off of it eventually, like uh, until you don't get off of it completely, then you don't, you haven't really experienced real sobriety. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to be totally transparent. And I know, you know, already, I know, you know, like that, that has been my mentality pretty much my whole sobriety since I ever, I knew about Suboxone before I got sober and I'm almost sober 15 years, right? Because yeah. I had, because I had a friend who was on Suboxone maintenance for 10 years. 10 years. And I, and I didn't understand that because, uh, I was, even though I had, uh, an addiction to opiates for a while, I had my, my heroin stint. I had my real opium stint. Um, I kicked those and it was the hardest kick I ever experienced in my life. I was more of a stimulant guy, right? Late, later on in my addiction and all throughout my addiction, I was in the stimulants. But so when, when dude was on it for 10 years of maintenance before I even got sober, I couldn't like, I didn't understand what that meant. I knew that it was an alternative to methadone, right? Yeah. It was, it was, and its purpose in the first place 
wasn't even to be an opiate blocker, but it became that later, right? So Chad's I think that subs were like created. I, I honestly, I don't know if it was. I, I know it was for like an alternative to uh, methadone, but I think it was like used in like Europe or somewhere like that mm -hmm. for another reason. Like I don't know if it was pain management or what, but I I know that it wasn't initially like designed to help people like us with like addiction. It, it was initially, and, and I'm sure Chad Sabaro could could give us. Yeah, that. he could tell you. <laughs> Even though he don't really care to talk to me directly, <laughs> or even come on the podcast, he just he likes to broadcast me through stitching me and things like that on my TikTok. Um, but it's it, to my knowledge and the research I've done, it was originally uh, m intended for pain management. Yes. Yeah, that's what Subox, and it's been around for a long time. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. But its intention was for that, and later. It uh, it became other things like a opiate block blocker and and right now I know a lot of people are still prescribing Suboxone to people for just pain. I mean, there was a girl that I just encountered yesterday that she had neck pain and she was on Suboxone. So so I mean that that's what doctors will hand that stuff out all the time. I appreciate you saying that you were misinformed. Um, I I admire seeing the attempt attempt or attempts that you've made even in january when you said you, you try to get up to me that tells me that inside of nicole's head there's something i know i can stay sober without subs i, 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 I mean, know I, I can but you know i know I mean? you can too too I mean, and that's the thing like um I, I admire that you attempt to want to get off and and i want to tell you like nicole like when are you gonna get off that shit like because they each their own truly like i if if people ask me or like let's say there's a a, a mother that tells me my 21 year old son is uh, has been doing opiates for two years or a year and you know he came off of them and now he's on suboxone maintenance per the doctor and um, and we want to keep him on that for as long as we can so he doesn't go back to doing fentanyl or heroin or whatever uh, I usually tell them like if it was my kid I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want my kid to be dependent upon uh, that particular drug because he's still dependent upon a drug, right? And, and so I don't think that the doctor, I don't think that parents understand because I have what I see happen. And because I'm not a medical professional or anything like that, but when people reach out to me about getting on ma maintenance medication, I tell them about my struggle to come off a of maintenance medication, also, mm -hmm. as well as telling them that it did help me for many, many years. It did. But right. if you're taking seven hydrocodone a day right. and you get on eight milligrams of Suboxone, yes, that's not fucking good. No, it's not. you don't need to be on Suboxone. Right. If you're, if you're abusing fucking Norco tins, right. like, come on, man, this is Suboxone is strong. Mm -hmm. This medication is for people who are out there smoking and shooting fentanyl. Right. That I can get down and I can get behind. But like, I feel like what's happened now lately is that they're just giving it to kids for anything. Do you know what right. somebody told me the other day? Hmm. She's a meth addict and they put her on Suboxone. Oh, believe me, I see them put people on Suboxone for everything besides opiates a lot of times in treatment. And that's wrong. Hmm. They're doing that's it for creating a whole nother dependency. Right. They're doing it for alcoholism, you know, in, in various centers. I hear I'm hearing about this a lot. So, so now I want to kind of get into, you know, I want to ask you, so is, 
is your plan to eventually taper off and be off of it completely? Have you ever considered sublocate? Oh, absolutely. Here's the thing. Let me tell you, though. I asked my doctor to put me on sublocate, but because I'm on such a low milligram of subs, uh -huh. he won't take me back up okay. to where I can get on the sublocate shot. Okay. And to your knowledge, do you know if people get on sublocate, which if, for those that don't know, sublocate is a shot, which is... Buprenorphine. Buprenorphine. Injection. Injection. Yeah. It's given to you once a month, right? And the plan is eventually to get off of it. Now, do you know if somebody gets off of sublocade, if they're going to have that hard of a kick as they would as if they got off of... I have a couple of friends who have, okay, so you start out with sublocate. It's a 300 milligram injection and then a 100 milligram in injection. So you get the 300 milligram injection like three or four times, and then you go down to the 100 milligram injection, and then you just stop getting the injection. I have one friend who has been off the injection, has not taken it for 12 months, and she's still testing positive for buprenorphine. 12 months later after discontinuing the shot. Very interesting. So it's staying in her system deeply. I want right. to real quick, a uh, couple of people made some comments. Uh, Isaac says beyond the matter of willpower. Austin's on here. Uh, hey, Austin. <laughs> a very special lady to me, Dana Genevieve, says this story is just, just like mine. And then she also says... I was sick for 35 days when I got off subs and I didn't know they were addictive either. Now this lady's saying, uh, she's asking my daughter's in rehab, uh, for meth in Arkansas. Do you think it would be best for her to go to sober living when she gets out? She is 34 years old and I don't know if I can let her back in my home when yeah, absolutely. There's a huge, amazing sober support network in Arkansas, especially here in Little Rock, gigantic sober support network. And if she gets in there and like really is serious about staying sober, she can get connected with some amazing people. Like mm -hmm. that's how I got my job in early sobriety. All I had such a good experience when I was in sober living, even though I relapsed. I have seen hundreds of people do so well and never go back to drugs and alcohol because of the amazing support in the 12 step community here in the Matt community here. There's a, a huge community of recovery in Arkansas. Yeah. Okay. That's great. I mean, I didn't know you're still in Arkansas. I thought you moved to a different part of the country, but I no, I'm in Arkansas. All, the time. all right. Don't know. Uh, here's uh, Melissa says, don't know. If I missed it, but my doc, there's a camera thing in front of me, but my doctor mentioned me being on subs for pain. I was taking 20 milligrams of oxy a day, was on subs for a bit. Okay. So in relation to what Sarah had asked about her daughter being in rehab for meth in Arkansas, um, as a person that, uh, has owned sober livings for a number of years, uh, I believe, and this is what I believe, in, and I'm not just saying this because I own sober livings, but I'm a, a person that's a firm believer that when somebody goes to treatment, they should never return back home. It means that her daughter, especially is 34 years old, even if her daughter was 24, I would still say, not back home, not not anymore. You know, I'd get educated, I would go to Naranon, Al-Anon, whatever you need to go to. 
to work on yourself as a mother, to, to be able to have that firm boundary and not let your daughter come back home. I would say no questions asked. You want my support? You need to go to sober living. And then I would find a sober living that is structured, that truly provides a space of safety uh, that is going to make sure that the individual is plugged into some kind of recovery uh, network, well, just like, like Nicole was talking about, uh, whether it be AA, CA, NA, MA, whatever, whatever A, right? But also if they need to do some more therapy and things like that, have her plugged into some kind of outpatient. Uh, otherwise, you know, uh, she needs to learn how to reintegrate back into society. And not, that's what I would do. If it was my kid, I would want them to go out and, and flourish in, in their own sobriety rather than come back to the lion's den, if you will. If they come back home, usually that's a place where they might end up relapsing again, and it's going to be the same song and dance. Um, now, so this is what I can say. I, I mean, I appreciate you like coming on here today, and we only have a few minutes, but I do want to go over this too. So I know that you be helping a lot of people. You, you do your very best. Your heart is in the right place. You're, you wear your heart on your sleeve. I know this about you. I don't sit in judgment and be thinking like, Nikki's on subs and she ain't really sober and she shouldn't be helping people. No, I, I, I watch what you do from a distance. I see it. I know that you are a good human being and you just want to be a good human being. I know you have a roller coaster of emotions that come out because you get badgered and judged from all different directions, not just on TikTok, not some youngsters on TikTok or some oldsters on TikTok, but but also there are people, um, you know, in various pages to try to call you out and say that you're not real or that you're uh, doing this, you know, trying to get people into treatment because you're just some marketing person that, that doesn't really care and, and is a fraud and a fake and all that. Put that shit aside. And even me, like the same thing about... Chad Sabar, like I would love to have him on here because I'd love to hear his his uh, outlook on on what recovery is. It's my understanding that he works in a treatment center too, and so when he is on uh, TikTok, you know, giving his knowledge base, which I don't know if his knowledge base is actually really out of his head or what he's learned, and maybe some of it is, but often he looks like he's reading from a teleprompter, so I can't really tell if he's just got his research in front of him and he's just like reading it. And e even so, like if it's factual research then great, put that information out there. But to come and like constantly poke at other people and say, you're doing it wrong and 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 I'm doing it right, like I would hope that um, that's not the, just the case. Like don't be a Mr. Know-it-all because then that's traces of narcissism and that's pretty scary and sad too within itself. At least have an open mind. Like as much as the people in harm reduction community want to have an open mind, uh, want us that are not in the harm reduction community to have an open mind to their movement, and their outlook, I would hope that they also keep an open mind to our movement and our outlook, which is I've tried bad. so hard to be like a, an ally with the harm reduction community. And that is the community that badgers me and, and harasses me the most. And I want to learn from them. Mm -hmm. But they when they say that I want to learn from them and I've even given them chances to message me and talk to me. And I don't know many other people that would do that, that are actually open to hearing the criticism that somebody has to say. Right. And it, whenever I do give them the chance, it's always you're dangerous to the community. You're a detriment to the community, Nicole. How? Mm -hmm. How? Because I'm sharing my experience mm -hmm. because I'm sharing what worked for me right. because I work for a medical doctor what do I do? I answer the phones. 
Well, this is this is what I would what I would say, and I'm not saying this to be pompous or arrogant, but this is my my outlook. Like, and it comes from the heart. I don't want it to come to sound like it's coming from the head or from the ego, but I know the harm reduction movement. Basically, from what I understand, what I've heard and seen, and what they do is they're basically saying that people need to stay on methadone or suboxone or buprenorphine in order to not go back to the lifestyle where they will overdose and die potentially. Right. That's my understanding. If I'm not mistaken. Right. I know that that's their idea. Then you have some people that say, well, when you have a 25, a person that's been using heroin for 25 years and they come off of that, they need to be on suboxone maintenance probably for the rest of their life. And personally, this is what I say. I say it from the heart, not from the head. I do not agree with that. I do not subscribe to that. I do not believe that that God wants his children to be dependent upon any drug, right? I mean, obviously, he don't want us to be doing the heavy drugs, but definitely not on any, like, it's even though it's uh, man-made and man comes from God and all that, I just don't feel like God wants his children to be dependent upon something to where they can't tap into spirit more. That's what I believe, right? I do not um, think that it's bad for someone to be on Suboxone and be go to AA meetings or be in the 12-step community. I know people that are going to HA, Heroin Anonymous, that sponsor people that are on Suboxone and they're okay with it. I myself, I, I, I don't feel like it would feel right if somebody wasn't completely abstinent for me to personally try to take them through the process of, you know, that type of recovery that I'm involved in. So again, but, but that's just me. Like if somebody asks me, I tell them, you know, I'll, I'll try to see where their head's at, see how they're feeling. And, and uh, if they say that that's what they want, that they want to remain on it, but they want to continue that process, the 12 step process, I put them in the hands of somebody that will be open to doing that. Not to say like, I don't want it. I don't think you're sober. I don't talk like that. There may have been a time when I thought that, there may have been a time when I would like profess that or say that stuff, but I've also wanted to keep an open mind because I see like over the last almost 15 years of my recovery in the last five years, especially due to the mere fact that fentanyl is such a killer. Yeah. It's such a killer that I don't want to just go and try to get people to come into this path and you need to be doing the 12 steps and you need to be completely sober. That's not what I want to be doing. I want to let people have their own experience because this is so detrimental to our society and what's happening in the epidemic of, of fentanyl addiction is just expanding and growing so much. Uh, I want to be able to, to let them know, like there are certain ways of getting better. I do believe this is what I still believe. I think that the box on is best used in a short term uh, like anywhere from seven to 10 days, you know, that's my belief. Like you already know. Yeah. I, and I don't like, I, 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 here's the thing with subs. Okay. Like it's a really, it's a really personal journey. Like I believe that some people can take subs for like 14 days and come off and do amazing. Do I believe that I would have stayed sober um, with my husband being on subs, me not being on subs? At when my son was taken away from me, no, I would have taken my husband's Suboxone. Right. I know myself without a shadow of a doubt. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so, 
at that time in my life, being getting on subs was the best decision I could have made. And it did help me to become successful and staying sober. But now that I've been on it for six and a half years, it's time for me to make the transition. I am strong in my recovery. I'm strong in my everyday life. I have a great routine. I have a good husband. I have my son back. Like everything's great. It's it's a great time. I feel like for me that I could do it without it. You know what I mean? And and the reason why I feel like that is because there's days where I don't even, I forget to take my Suboxone. You know what I'm saying? It's because I, that's not my obsession anymore. Do you know what I mean? It used to be such a focus of my life that I was like, oh, I got to take my subs this morning. Can't forget to take two. It's not like that anymore. And I'm so proud of myself that it's not. But I will tell you this, like I wish, I just wish there was a better way to educate people so that way they don't feel like they got misinformed or they don't feel like they got taken advantage of or they don't feel like they're 10 years on subs and won't be able to ever get off. You know what I mean? Like that's a fucking horrible feeling to have that you're never going to be able to get off, but you can. And you know what I say? If you are like me and you're struggling to get off, go into a detox, Mm -hmm. go into a detox, you know, stop taking your subs, go into a detox and, and do it there. So that way they can monitor you and help you. And that way you can be safe. You know what I mean? That's probably what I'll end up doing because I don't believe that I could do it in my home with my little boy running around right. and my husband here, like I need someone to help me. I, I respect that. And I understand. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, listen, as a sober living owner, when people do try to come to us, I often say, if you are on Suboxone, we would like for you to be off of it. If you're going to be on Sublicate, we'd like to know, like, I'd like to know what your doctor and you are talking about. Uh, are you guys going to be weaning off? Like, is there a, a, a timeline? Is there going to be a date of when you will be, off of it completely. I don't mind you being on Sublicate, but if you're on Suboxone, I could encourage you to get detoxed. Uh, Sublicate is a miracle drug. More people need to know about Sublicate. More people need to get on Sublicate because it can literally, you you don't have to be, it's the, it's the hand to mouth motion that can, can in itself become like an addiction kind of thing. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? So when you're just getting that shot, dude, it is like, I have seen it change people's lives. I'm so jealous of people who have been able to get the shot and just walk away from it. And I've Mm -hmm. helped so many people get the shot that are a year sober now without the shot that Mm -hmm. are seven months sober and, and not taking the shot anymore. And I'm like, so jealous. I'm like, I wish that could be me. Well, you never know. I mean, we your heart's still beating and your lungs are still breathing, so you never know. I, we'll, we'll leave off with this since we've gone a full hour. I wanted just to show you one last message from one of our friends, one of my best friends. Is that your old lady? <laughs> yeah, that's her. There's <laughs> a very, very similar story to you. As a matter of fact, I'll even put you all in, in touch with each other because – uh, very similar stuff. CPS involved um, using all that. So she was texting me during this and saying like she she feels your emotion. She knows exactly like uh, she went through the same thing almost identically. So I can't help but cry when I talk about my son because he saved my life. I love that. I love that. Him being more saved my life because it gave me something to love because I didn't love myself at all. And I. I can love my son and, and loving my son has helped me learn how to love myself. You know, I love that. Good job, Nikki. 
Good job. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Don't even trip. Okay. Um, we have 30 seconds. There was one last message from Kiflin. I was on Suboxone. The same thing happened to me. 30 days in bed. It was worse than when I was on methadone. I finally surrendered. And uh, come April 29th, I'll have nine years when I was on methadone and Suboxone. I went back to using, I'm not a doctor, regarding physical pain management, uh, but my view as a recovering opiate addict, what works for me is the 12 steps and the fellowship, and then service is the best way for me to be free. I'm free to travel the world. Life can get really hard and shitty for sure. Awesome. Thank you, Kiflin. And thank you, Nikki. Thank you for being on here today. You are amazing. I love you very much, and I'll be talking to you soon. Love you too, man. Thank you. All right. Ghetto Fabulous. Bye. Bye.